Welcome to Self-Care Hacks, the short podcast for overwhelmed and stressed out women who want to learn how to take better care of themselves. I'm your host, Anita Ojeda. I used to suffer from overwhelm and stress too, but I've learned how to take care of myself and take care of others. You can too. This month, we've been talking about mental health awareness or mental illness awareness. And today's topic is one that is near and dear to my heart. I read a heartbreaking post on Facebook yesterday. A woman attends a church where the pastor, whose qualifications consist of a seminary degree, has pulpit-shamed his congregation into abandoning their medication for depression, anxiety, and other mental illnesses. The woman fears for her friend, who followed the pastor's counsel and has slipped further into depression. Okay, I can't stay silent any longer. Churches should stay silent on the issue of mental health rather than diminish the mental health crisis by claiming that people who suffer lack faith. What kind of drivel do they teach in seminaries these days? Will pastors next pulpit shame diabetics into discontinuing the use of their insulin? Or perhaps urge those with broken limbs to saw off or to saw off their casts? Can preachers be sued for pastoral malpractice? I confess that I have a limited and rudimentary knowledge of mental illness. Although I suffered from depression after my husband's stem cell transplant, I never took antidepressants. Maybe I should have. I probably would have had fewer physical side effects from my depression. But we did almost lose daughter to an undiagnosed mental illness, all because of our ignorance. So those who love God and go to church cannot stay silent any longer. We can't be made cowed by those who claim we lack faith when what we really lack is education. A one-cure-fits-all does not exist for mental illnesses. God created each of us as unique individuals with incredible variety, history, and epigenetic makeup. I'll talk a little bit more about epigenetics later on, and I'll leave some resources in the show notes. We need to embrace the fact that what works for one patient might not work for another. The church needs to change its attitude or stay silent. That rigid, you're depressed because you lack faith attitude sends those who need the support and compassion of the church stumbling out the back door, never to return. Maintenance of most mental illnesses requires medication, just like maintenance of most forms of diabetes requires insulin. We need to educate ourselves and train pastors to provide the support and healing that those suffering from mental illnesses need in order to have a full and meaningful relationship with God. So let's take a break here and talk about why you shouldn't go to your pastor for counseling. Counseling and therapy are not the same. Don't get me wrong, I just want to set the record straight. Most pastors give wise, godly counsel, except for the one mentioned in the Facebook incident earlier. But a pastoral counselor and a therapist don't do the same things. We often use the words interchangeably to indicate someone we go to when we have a problem. Before you decide to take your racing thoughts and compulsion to your local pastor, think about this. I took a class in school law, but that doesn't make me qualified to represent a client in court. While licensed ministers of the gospel may have taken a class or two or three in family and marriage counseling, most do not have an actual state-issued counseling license. This doesn't preclude the pastor from giving good marriage advice, but it also doesn't guarantee that the advice they give will solve your problem. 
According to the Word of Life Christian Training Institute, a state license is not required to do Christian counseling as an ordained or licensed minister or as part of an official program of a church. In other words, anyone can counsel within the boundaries of a church. A state licensed counselor, on the other hand, has to have a master's degree and go through a rigorous internship program that requires thousands of hours of supervised counseling before they can counsel on their own. I don't want to discount the training and experience that ministers and pastors receive as part of their education. The fact remains, though, that a licensed pastor doesn't have the same education as a state-licensed counselor, and not all denominations require pastors to go through a credentialing or licensing program. Think of it this way. I have my first aid and CPR card, but I take no offense when someone with a broken arm visits the ER. In fact, I would offer to drive them. Likewise, a good pastor will direct his sheep to the proper place for the right kind of help. And what kind of help do you need? The analogy between first aid certification and a state board license to practice medicine should help you figure out what kind of help you really need. If you have low-level problems, need premarital counseling, or have moral questions, consider a visit to your pastor. For more persistent problems, such as depression, anxiety, racing thoughts, serious marital issues, trauma, or abuse, look for an expert. If you feel you need healing from your past in order to experience mental wholeness, assess yourself before you seek help. Journal about the problem. Try self-help books. They may help you resolve the problem or help you narrow your search for help. But remember that a self-help book won't always cut it. When our daughter experienced profound depression, she couldn't focus enough to read more than a page. She needed professional counseling. I wanted to find a Christian counselor, but that proved difficult in our remote area. For some reason, I distrusted counselors who didn't claim Christian as part of their identity. In searching for a Christian counselor, I discovered that a state-licensed counselor's mandate, Christian or not, is to remain neutral. Silly me. For some reason, I had the perception that a non-Christian counselor would automatically ask about religious affiliation and try to talk the patient out of his or her faith as part of the counseling agenda. I probably got that attitude somewhere at church, unfortunately. You should also seek a counselor, therapist, psychologist, or psychiatrist whose goals include working themselves out of a job. Whoever helps you should teach you to function and resolve problems on your own. Whatever the case, we don't need pulpit-shaming ignoramuses heaping guilt upon the lost and the hurting. Jesus didn't do that. He called the weary, the heavy burdened, to him. He also didn't promise to heal everyone's ailments. Think about Paul and the burden that Jesus never healed for him. Here are some hacks to help your church understand mental illnesses. First of all, share information about mental illness with your pastor before he or she pulpit shames anyone. Schedule a little conference with them and ask them to tell you about their philosophy of mental illness. Hack number two, buy books by godly authors who are both psychiatrists, psychologists, or counselors and have actually suffered from depression or some other mental illness. Put them in the church library where others can find them and get help. Hack number three, ask church leadership about their stand on mental illnesses. If it's an all prayer or you're not a Christian, 
sort of attitude, and they don't have an open mind, think about finding another church community. Hack number four, if you suffer from a mental illness, be willing to share your experience with others in your church family. It might be in a Bible study group, a Sunday school, or from the pulpit. Hack number five, ask if you can do a short presentation about mental illnesses. You can find resources on the show notes page. Hack number six, ask if you can create posters about mental illness and warning signs of suicide, for example, and post them around your church. Whatever you can do to bring awareness to people about the fact that a large portion of the population suffers from mental illnesses. Make sure that your church family understands that things like autism, Alzheimer's, depression, anxiety, schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, they all fall under the category of mental illnesses. Challenge your church leadership to get involved with the Mental Health Awareness Month that happens each May. Look on NAMI's website, I'll leave a link in the show notes, for information about how you can bring awareness to mental illness to other people in your congregation. And now, I'm going to talk a little bit about something called epigenetics. You may have heard this term before, and this is something that hopefully, if you understand it, you can help explain to other people in your congregation that mental illness is not devil position, and it's not something that um, means we have a lack of faith. It is actually something that can happen to our genes. So did you know that trauma can change your genes? Changing your genes, J-E-A-N-S, is good. Changing, changing your genes, G-E-N-E-S, due to trauma, is not so good. Scientists have discovered that changes in our gene function can happen outside of our DNA sequence. The prefix epi means above, outer, attached to, or after. Genetics refers to the way your genes control your characteristics. Therefore, epigenetics refers to changes that take place outside or above your DNA sequence. Molecular biologist Nessa Carey calls your DNA sequence a script not a template. Your chromosomes determine DNA sequence, but the other actors on the stage determine and sometimes change your script. In layman's terms, epigenetics means that stimuli on the outside of your cells can cause a chemical reaction on the inside of cells that either represses or makes manifest certain characteristics in your genome. I'll leave a video in the show notes that helps explain it more clearly than I could. Social experiences can cause epigenetic changes within us. Let's say that you walk into a cafeteria your first day of middle school and sit at the wrong table. The school bully berates you for your seating choice. Inside, your body has a chemical reaction to this social experience that sticks to your genome, causing a future negative physical reaction to cafeteria settings. Processing the traumatic experience with a friend or family member Will help you recover from the incident and the programming gets erased. This allows you to enter the cafeteria the next day and every day thereafter. The traumatic event has occurred and the chemical reaction gets neutralized. If you don't process the traumatic event in some way, it can become a trigger that reinforces the negative reaction. Over time, this can cause a small t trauma to turn into a big 
T. Trauma. You need to learn to share your little traumas with a kind audience. Teach your children to do the same. If this feels outside your comfort zone, learn to process those events in a journal. And now let's talk about big T trauma. Let's say you experience abuse of some sort. This constitutes a big T trauma. Once again, your body has a chemical reaction inside the cells. Your beliefs about yourself, your role in the trauma you experienced, and how you process future trauma all change at the cellular level. This means that your body might rewire itself to handle trauma in a certain, often negative, way. Sounds, sights, smells, touch, or words could trigger a negative but involuntary response. The set of tags attached to any given cell is called the epigenome. Carlos Guerrero Bozogna explains, Epigenetic tags can survive cell division. Thus, they can last the life of the organism and pass it on to the offspring. This helps explain why certain situations cause us to crave dark chocolate. It also explains why some people flinch when touched or startle at loud noises. Epigenetics and the change in our epigenome also help explain something called generational trauma. So remember that you can pass these genetic tags to your offspring, which means your parents may have passed down some epigenetic tags to you. And you might wonder why sometimes you feel certain ways during certain experiences, even though you've never experienced any trauma directly involving that experience. So let's go on to generational trauma and I'll explain it a little bit more. Take for example Native Americans. White settlers and soldiers invaded their territory and tried to reprogram the to live an agrarian lifestyle. Soldiers, police officers, or priests took young children into custody and sent them away to boarding schools, sometimes thousands of miles away from home. The schools took away the children's identities by cutting their hair, dressing them like white kids, and punishing them for speaking their native languages. Traumatic? You bet. Especially in a time period when no one understood the effects of trauma. Those boarding school survivors had their genetic makeup changed by their trauma. No one helped them understand the trauma or offered them counseling services. This took place back in the 1850s to about 1910-1920. Today, if a student dies, whether through natural or unnatural causes, the school immediately sends in extra counselors to help the students process the loss. This didn't happen at the boarding schools for Native Americans. Carlisle Indian School, the most famous or infamous school, had an average of 12 students die a year during its 39-year existence. 500 children died from disease, neglect, and malnutrition. No one provided counseling. Now, think of all the myriad changes possible in the genetic makeup of each of the children who attended an Indian boarding school under duress. The epigenetic changes could involve physiological changes as well as emotional changes. Sadly, Carlisle Indian School wasn't the only forced assimilation school in the United States. Sociologists call this generational trauma. The students I teach today have had their genetics changed by trauma that happened to their grandparents and great-grandparents. We should treat others gently, hesitate to blame a person for her actions or state of being. An obese child may not overeat. The coding for the way they process food and store fat may have been passed down from a trauma that their grandparents experienced. Fortunately, scientists have discovered that the sequence of molecular tags can be erased. 
This highlights the importance of taking care of past trauma, preferably before you have children. If you process, or in some cases reprocess, the trauma, whether it's big T trauma or little t trauma, you can erase the negative effects. Some therapists have found EMDR, eye movement desensitization and reprocessing, therapy an effective way to erase or reprogram the minds, and therefore the body's, reaction to triggers. EMDR is not hypnosis, for those of you who don't want anything to do with hypnosis. Our past doesn't have to hold us prisoner in the present, and we don't have to pass on our traumas to our children. We do need to learn to deal with our past in constructive ways that will help us overcome the negative effects of trauma and prevent the trauma from passing on to future generations. So don't forget the seven hacks to help your church understand mental illnesses better. Share information about mental illnesses with your pastor before he pulpit shames anyone. Buy books for your church library written by godly authors who are both psychiatrists, counselors, or therapists and have suffered from depression, anxiety, or any other variety of mental illnesses. Hack number three, ask church leadership about their stand on mental illnesses. If it doesn't align with yours, you might want to find a new congregation. Hack number four, if you suffer from a mental illness, be willing to share your experience with others in your church family. Hack number five, ask if you can do a short presentation about mental illnesses or epigenetics. Hack number six, ask if you can create posters about mental illnesses and warning signs of suicide and post them around the church. Hack number seven, challenge church leadership to get involved with the Mental Health Awareness Month that happens every May. Come back next week when we start talking about vacation. Take care of yourselves, my friends. You are worth it. You can find me at selfcarehacks.net or check out the show notes for links to my social media accounts. If you enjoyed this podcast, take the time to tell a friend. Together we can build each other up and teach each other how to take better care of ourselves. I'll see you here next Tuesday with more self-care hacks to help you overcome the overwhelm.